ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Here on Conversations, Richard and I often speak with people who've performed some remarkable physical feat. They've sailed around the world solo, walked across Antarctica, jumped headfirst out of planes, climbed sheer rock walls, survived on their own wits in the jungle. And look, sometimes they've even done these things naked. And to be honest, I'm often sitting opposite them thinking, why? What pushes someone to voluntarily put themselves not just in extreme discomfort, but in danger, to risk death? For what? Do they have less fear than the rest of us? Or is the urge to confront their fear part of what's driving them? Eric Brimer is a psychologist who specialises in the thinking of adventurers and extreme athletes. And Eric knows some of this from the inside. He's a whitewater kayaker, and as well as mountain rapids, he has kayaked the length of the Ganges. Hi, Eric. Uh, Hi, Sarah. You're based in Queensland now, Eric, but where did you grow up? So I grew up in the mountains of North Wales um, on a little farm up there, a little sort of um, multi-farm where we had some dairy cows, some sheep, um, grew some hay, grew some corn, um, the typical kind of multi-farm that you'd get in North Wales. That sounds very picturesque. What's the countryside look like? What are those mountains like? It's beautiful. And right where we were, of course, you could see all the the large mountains that are in Wales. I say large. They're large for Wales. They're maybe not large for the Himalaya or the Andes, but they're large for Wales. Um, And a lot of the training for the original um, Everest climbing happened in North Wales, of course, so they um, they are quite good mountains. What are the names of those? What's the, what are so some of those? we have um, the typical one is Snowdon, which most people will know because they go there, Ildwitva. Um And we also have uh, another um, lovely mountain which looks just like a sleeping elephant. So it's called Elephant Mountain, but um, Manith Maur and places like that as well. So, yeah, lots of lovely mountains up there. And what was your favourite season when you were living there on the farm? All of them were from my favourite seasons, actually. It's, it's, um, you, it's one of those areas where you get different things from different times um, of the year. So summertime um, brought its, uh, you know, all the lovely sun and the sort of running around in the grass and the, and the flowers and, the, and so forth. Spring, that lovely frost that you can get um, and the daffodils coming out. Winter, I loved crunching around in the snow um, and uh, doing all the things that snow allows you to do. Um, and also um, autumn because of the, the way that the sort of leaves fall off and the colours of the leaves and um, all those sort of things that you see in, that you can only see in autumn time. And do the mountains take on different aspects in those different seasons? If you can see them. Most of the time Wales is covered in cloud, but yes, absolutely. Um, there's lots of... The, the way the sun and the light works, um, depending how high it is, how low it is, the mountains take on very different characteristics. Sometimes they can be really friendly and you look at them and you think they're just inviting me to go there. And sometimes they can look quite angry and, um, and uh, asking you to stay away. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you always stay away when that happens, but it just means that you have to be a little bit more careful. You, you look at the environment and you think, OK, I need to be a little bit more aware and, um, before you go into them. Did you spend much time outside as a kid? As a kid, that's all I did. Um, apart from, of course, when you were in school. Um, that inconvenient interruption. That, that inconvenient interruption, absolutely right. Um, and uh, But yes, that's all I did. Um, what, what would you do out there? Well, I, I, you know, I, basically from the age of, when I could walk really, from the age of four or five, I used to just wander across the fields with my dog. By the time I was nine, ten, I was out um, doing much more of the sort of um, the more adventurous type of stuff. Um, supposedly catching food whilst fishing and shooting and things like that, but most of the time it was just enjoying being outdoors and and taking a you know like uh, observing all the wildlife and observing the sort of the way the natural world works, but also working on the farm. I mean, I used to love working on the farm. What were your jobs? Well, in wintertime, it's really interesting. As my I used to tell my children these stories when they were younger and they were desperate to go back to have a look at the farm. My vod where I was born up now is, uh, is they developed it into a country hotel. So we don't own the house anymore. We still own some of the land. But I can remember at five o'clock in the morning or even four o'clock in the morning, wandering up from the house up to, the, um, up to where the cow shed was, um, helping my father milking the cows. Um, that's probably from the age of nine or ten. 
I guess um, those cows are beautiful, warm animals on a cold morning. They are very much so, um, and uh, it is definitely something. When you're, it's, I suppose for me though, it's more of the smells and the sounds that I that I recall. Although it is much warmer in the shed with the cows than it is outside in the middle of winter, I had five or six layers on, including great big thick outer coats. In those days, the Gore-Tex, sort of the Gore-Tex type coat didn't exist, so we used to have these wax coats, which were probably about ten kilos, just picking them up, and um, and and wax sort of leggings to keep yourself warm and dry, and, and great big welly boots that, that if you if you um, lived in the UK, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your face is freezing, your hands are freezing because you can't cover those up because you've got to do work. You're out a little bit later sort of smashing all the ice on the water troughs because the animals still need to drink and they can't drink through ice. But overnight you've got half an inch of ice. It's interesting to me, but those kind of more uh, uncomfortable uh, um, experiences were actually the ones that I remember more and, and take away, have taken with me across my life much more than the more comfortable ones. Tell me a little bit more about that inconvenient interruption of school. How old were you when you were sent away to boarding school? <laughs> we were probably in boarding school from the age of nine. My parents, because we were in Wales at that time, most of the education was done in the medium of Welsh, um, which is fantastic and it's very much encouraged now. But it did mean that if you wanted to go to university or if you had a, fe- a feeling for go to university, most universities were done in the medium of English. So for one reason or another, my parents decided it was best for us to go to boarding school and get that education. So from age eight or nine, we were in boarding school. How homesick were you at first? Very. Oh, always, all the way through, not just at first. It wasn't... My, it's interesting, my brother, one of my brothers sort of seemed to gel much more with boarding school, but it wasn't my thing. Um, I, um, I, I prefer to be free and across the farm. And boarding school was a little bit more like a prison. Uh, but, you know, there were opportunities still in boarding school, so I'm, I'm not saying there weren't those other things, but, but broadly that's, it, it wasn't something that I, I gelled with as much as um, uh, one of my brothers did. How did it affect your character, do you think, being from age of nine or so fairly yeah. on your own in, in a sense? Yeah, it, 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 it does create opportunities for you to develop uh, a sense of being able to rely on what you have within you to uh, to get through life, to get through day-to-day uh, sort of things. You, you get to know a little bit about what you're capable of much more um, because, you know, there isn't any... Your parents aren't there to go to if you have an issue, so you have to... But at the same time, it doesn't mean that's a healthy thing necessarily. Um, you know, you, you end up relying or you end up creating uh, a way of existing and surviving and working in that environment, hopefully thriving to an extent, but it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily develop the healthiest ways of doing that. Sometimes it's a matter of shutting off the things you don't like or, or becoming very sort of uh, internal in the process um, in order to, to get through the day-to-day living, really. It's, it's interesting, Eric. We've noticed on the program that often people who end up doing something that requires mm. a lot of internal fortitude or mm. uh, great stretches of time alone in, mm. in these sorts of adventurous or extreme pursuits, it's common for them to have had an experience at boarding school. It, it doesn't surprise me, um, but there are also opportunities often in boarding school where you might learn skills. For sake of example, you might actually learn how to sail a boat. Or you might be part of um, the what we used to call the NCF, the sort of um, pre-army kind of training. Um, or you might be part of, uh, you might be do the Duke of Edinburgh, or you might be some... So there, there's also an element of developing skills as well as the element of being able to be on your own for a, a, for a period of time. What mm. sight made your heart happiest when you'd go home on holidays? <laughs> Just the openness, the freedom. Um, obviously your parents as well is you don't you know you, when you're a long way from them it's um it, it it does make a great big difference but for me I think the biggest one would be being back on the farm and um, being able to wander with my dog across the fields and I used to just disappear when I got to about the age of 12 I got my uh, 11 or 12 maybe my first um, shotgun and I used to fishing rods long before that so myself and my dog used to go out um, probably by the time I was age 13 or 14 after my father thought I was safe enough to be on my own with the gun. I used to wander around our farm and all sorts of other farms as well and they gave, gave me permission to go there and just be on my own for a whole day. And myself. what would you bring back? Most of the time, memories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my mother used to say, well, if we have to rely on you for food, we'd all be starving. So 
not that I didn't see anything and not that I wasn't necessarily a, a, a wasn't a, a necessarily a good shot but my enjoyment wasn't out there to kill it was just there because and some of the times I used to just sit there and just watch and and just be amazed the fact that I could be within a few meters of a pheasant or a few meters of a fox and it didn't even know I was there and I'd managed to get that close to it and I had no intention of uh, shooting it or anything along those lines it was just to be there and to watch it and to experience that, um, you know, being out in the natural world with that wild animal. I sometimes think that's the way with fishing rods. I think that's just an excuse, a prop for someone to go and yeah. stand by water <laughs> and reflect for a while. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, we used to do, um, my my favourite fishing was fly fishing, mainly wet fly fishing rather than dry fly. So we used to do the rivers and, and, and so forth. But you're absolutely right. Actually, my most fondest memories of fishing are when it all goes wrong. Um, one that comes to mind immediately is when we, we went out to this lake that myself and my father used to fish in a lot. And, and all of a sudden the weather turned and we were suddenly in the middle of an enormous hailstone storm. Um, so these, not as big as Queensland hailstones, but they're still big enough. And, uh, you know, having to find somewhere and quickly create shelter somewhere and, um, you know, soaking wet, creating a fire, drying those things out, catching no fish whatsoever, <laughs> being absolutely wet, drenched, um, feeling massively uncomfortable. But that's the memory that sticks with me. After school, you ended up working at the National Mountain Centre. What's that? Yeah, so it was a few years after school. I mean, I didn't start learning, really, I didn't start learning um, adventure sports as we would recognise them now until later on in my school life. Um, and at that time, I actually wasn't that keen on it. So I, so I took it up again in my university years. Um, and I was mid-20s by the time I went to university. And then one of the opportunities we had was to, uh, you know, to develop instructor skills, etc. So as a result of that, I went to the National Mountain Centre in Wales. And essentially what that is, uh, each, each country, if you like, in the UK has a uh, one place that they consider to be uh, the sort of peak organisation for training leaders and for providing opportunities um, for those who wish to develop the skills within mountaineering. And this, this particular centre uh, specialised in the mountaineering element and the kayaking element. Um, and so I went there uh, really is in the first instance as a, to, to provide opportunities for people to come and experience that. But then that grew to, um, you know, working there within the instructor training side of things and and much later on in life went into train the trainer type stuff as well and, and to provide opportunities for them to learn some of the theory as well as some of the practice. You would uh, take groups of kids on mm. uh, expeditions as, as part of your work with that centre. Yeah. In my experience, Eric, bushwalking with kids can be stressful. Uh, no. <laughs> you want to encourage them to run mm. off and, and be adventurous and then always think, where are they? And that looks like a cliff face. So yeah. did things ever go wrong when you were taking... Plenty groups? of times. Yeah. Yes, plenty of times. Um, yes, yes. Working with young people in these environments, um, especially doing it all the time, you've either got to be, um, you know, really focused in terms of the risk and element like that, which can be, especially if you're on multi-day trips can be extremely stressful and really hard work on your own cognitive capacities as well as sort of everything else you need to do. And yes, I can remember one trip with um, young people. Um, most of it was quite gentle. We started off in a lake and then we canoed down a river and then we canoed across another lake, a few little bouncy bits in between. And then eventually we get to a village, um, which uh, is quite a well-known be uh, village, uh, Beth Gellert, because of the stories that link to Beth Gellert. But just below that village, there are some really dangerous rapids. They're grade five. Um, and we were in canoes. And we stopped at the village. And then I had a whole, as I normally do, great big instructor thing saying, remember to put your buoyancy A's in, all those sort of things that you do as we're getting on. And you think, what else have I forgotten? I've forgotten nothing. Because of the danger of it, I moved a little bit further down. Because these have been canoeing a lot, I knew they had the skills to get there. And I moved down to make sure that people didn't go any further than I, than I was so we could get off and walk around. And then coming around the corner were these boats, two of them not in the place that I wanted them to be on the complete opposite side of the river. So they had to, and, and then also on top of that, one of them without a buoyancy aid on, one of them without a helmet on. That would have been my son, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you can imagine the things that were going flashing through my, first of all, you've got to get them to the, back to the other side of the river when it's starting to get a little bit faster, knowing full well what's just around the corner. There's no way that they would get through that. If they didn't have buoyancy aids and helmets on, they would be, you know, best case scenario is they'd have a headache. Um, but worst case scenario, actually, is they would be smashing their heads on some really big rocks um, and lack of buoyancy aid that would be pulled off them straight away. 
so that was quite heart-wrenching um, and uh, definitely uh, required uh, all the rope skills um, that I'd learnt over the years to get them over to my side of the river very, very quickly. What was going on for you emotionally, Eric? Are you keeping calm or, or what's, y- yes. what kicks in? Yes, the first off is... Oh my God, as you would expect. But then the only way you manage that is calmness. The calmness allows you to, um, to, to tune into information around the place, what sort of things you need to take into account. Because on the one hand, it seems quite easy. You just get a rope over there and you pull them in. But actually, you need to make sure the rope's in the right place. That is the right strategy, first of all, because there are rocks in the way. And if you do get a rope to the people at the right time, or the, you know, is, it, is it the right place? Because could you actually be pulling them into something that's going to get them into more trouble. So there's all sorts of things that go through your mind. Um, And you have to be able to do that in a very calm way. You can't do that if you're really sort of panicking and narrow because then you just do, you do something that becomes, um, you, you know, it's just kind of first reaction. And sometimes your first reaction isn't the right one. You've mentioned uh, a few times the the clouds that can suddenly appear in, mm. in Wales, in the Welsh countryside. What experiences have you had being on mountains <laughs> with clouds? Yes, we've I, I, another experience with another group of young people um, going up uh, one of the more technical mountains in North Wales. You do all the normal checks as you every morning before you do. You check the weather and you you, you make sure that um, the group you're taking got everything they need. You, you you know everything's all those sort of things. But sometimes things don't go to plan, even though you do the best thing you possibly can. And on this particular day, we were halfway up. Um, and then all of a sudden this cloud just came around the corner and I could see maybe a maximum 10 feet in front of your tent, you know, so that sort of thing. And I could, same behind. So did that mean the kids were out of sight? Out of sight. The ones at front and the ones at the back were out of sight, essentially. But also when this cloud comes around, it changes the way noise works. So um, when there's no cloud there, your voice can travel reasonably well and you might be able to catch the ones in front. You've got an eye on them as well. And these groups, on the one hand, it sounds, well, why are you letting groups do this? But actually, when you're working in these environments, part of what you're doing is en- enabling children uh, or young, young people, or teenagers, to develop the skills to do these on your own. So sometimes you lead from different positions. You don't always lead from the front. But in this instance, it was thoroughly unexpected, this cloud to come around. And I suddenly found myself with not being able to see the front ones, not being able to see the back ones. Um, and not and, being able to call out to and them. Calling, but then not being able to hear. And you're suddenly in this position of saying, well, okay, now what? Where do we go from here? Uh, you know, you have to completely rethink the original plans because you can't carry on doing what you intended to do um, because you've got a group that's too far apart. So you have to rethink this process and you have to rethink it pretty quickly. And in this instance, we had to, you know, we ended up finding a different route to come down. So we we could come down safely and everybody could be in one piece and we and actually could go back to school and say, I brought them all back. <laughs> Here they are. <laughs> Here they are, in one piece. <laughs> it was in these years that you began really embracing whitewater kayaking yeah, yourself. Yeah. Tell me about that. What What is that sport as opposed to a, a kayak on a harbour? How's it different? Yeah, well... Essentially, what wide water kayaking is, is moving down fast-moving rivers. Uh, so you have different levels. Um, you can have a fast-moving river that doesn't look particularly dangerous because it looks quite calm on top. When we move into white water, it's when it starts to, either because the, the river gets narrower or because there's lots of rocks in the way um, and it starts to drop, you get lots of rapids and you get lots of rocks in the way. And the technical element then is, is, is you know, it, it's part of the joy you have to really understand what the water's doing. Um, you have to read the water quite well. Um, the little bit of movement you can see 30, 40 metres away, if you don't quite get it right, it could mean there's a rock under uh, underneath or it can mean all sorts of different things where you get stuck. So whitewater kayaking is about how you manoeuvre down these, um, these kind of wild areas. The nearest, if you've ever watched the Olympic Games, you see slalom, all those kind of uh, water features that they move through is what you're moving through in white water. But on top of that, you have all sorts of riggedy-piggedy rocks all over the place and you have dangerous elements as well that if you get caught in them, um, there's a good chance you won't come out again. Or if you do, you'll come out in, in a very battered state. So you, you're telling me it's not just sort of bashing from rock to rock and trying to get to the bottom as quickly as possible, which would be my approach. Yeah, <laughs> you're, actually, yeah. you're actually trying to think ahead about what, yeah. where you're trying to angle. Yeah, absolutely. Because actually for many white waters, it gets... Uh, when, it's, when it's just starting, it's much more obvious. The river kind of often forms into a V and you can see where the V is and you sort of slide down the centre of the V. As it gets a little bit more rough, though, those Vs aren't so obvious. 
Um, and if they are, then maybe two or three Vs. So you've got to go from one V to another V. And the only way you can do that is to go from out of the V behind a rock and then across to another V. And then as it gets more extreme, there's no Vs at all. So you have to then understand um, which bits of the water will allow you to move through it and which bits of the water won't. And as you get better at doing that, sometimes you enjoy going into the bits of the water that won't allow you to move through it because you can do all sorts of things with your kayak. You know, you can spin and do all sorts of really sort of um, you know, quite fun things, really, and, so, and move your body around the kayak around and enjoy that, that particular it, water feature. Is it insanely exciting? Um, exciting is an interesting word. I, I, to me, it's not exciting. To me, it's actually relaxing. And calming. What do you mean, relaxing? Yeah, it's it's really it from the outside. It looks like it should be exciting, like a roller coaster ride. You know, you go on this and you're screaming and yelling, but actually, to me, it's very, very different. It removes all the all the chatter that we have that goes on all the time. That suddenly disappears because you're totally in the moment, um, focusing on what you're doing, and you know, exploring the environment to the extent that you really have to. Und- you really have to be in that environment, attuned to the information in the environment, which means there's no space for anything else. The other thing it also does, it sort of has this embodied feeling for me as well, where um, when it goes right, it's, it's almost like this sense of, you know, when you see really skilled dancers and it almost feels like they're floating across the floor when you watch them. It's like that as well. It's almost, it's a feeling of being, uh, of floating, of sort of flying, of being kind of um, almost surreal as you're moving across. There's no struggle when you get it right. It's really, you, you've just really read the river right and one stroke and you're suddenly in it. It's, it's a very sort of um, surreal experience. So from that perspective, I actually find it really, really calming when I'm in there. That's not to say that when you're looking at it, you think, oh, this, your heart might pump a little bit. Um, and that's not to say when you come out of it, you think, wow, that was fantastic. But actually when you're in that moment doing it, you almost have to be calm because the calmness allows your body to relax too. It allows your mind to relax. And if your body's not relaxed and your mind's not relaxed, you end up, whether you want to or not, you end up trying to fight the water or fight the process. And you, you can't fight water when it's at that level. It's just not possible. There's so much that's out of your control, though, Eric. I mean, are you having to think about what you do if something goes wrong? You probably made plans beforehand and you figured out where you want to be and how you're going to get there. And if everything goes to plan, that's a lovely, smooth, lovely moment, uh, movement, set of movements and you're, and you're where you want to be and you'd get down the other end and that you think that's fantastic. Like a dance. Um, it really is like a dance with the natural world where you've had to be so attuned to that information to make it to be exactly the right place at the right time that you can make these movements in, in the way that the natural world allows you, encourages you, invites those movements to happen. That's not to say that you haven't had plenty of training in the past that says what happens when it all goes wrong, because it does go wrong. Um, you know, whether you like it or not, it does go wrong. And you only have to look at the, the statistics in all sorts of adventure sports to realize things go wrong. Most of the time, hopefully, it's just a little bit of a bump or a little bit wetness or you go over and you come back up again or something along those lines. But that's actually part of the training you do in, that enables you to paddle at that process. So you get that training done in, in the sort of working up to um, becoming more advanced, more skilled, um, and also making mistakes, making mistakes and testing your capacities when it's not so dangerous. So you have plenty of time to get wet, plenty of time to fall out, plenty of time to get stuck in a stopper and think, how am I going to get out of this? What's the most dangerous experience you've been in in kayaking, do you think? Um, I've had a few interesting scenarios where um, I'm probably not the world's best kayaker. I'm definitely not the world's best kayaker by any means. Um, And uh, when I started out, boats were still fiberglass, which meant you had to be much more skilled than you do now. Uh, You can bounce off things now. um, But but sometimes when the way the water works, it carves away at the rocks. Uh, Then you can have an area where the water is going underneath the rocks. And I've been in one occasion where I've been pushed underneath the rocks. There's water just swirling around you. It swirls around you and it actually swirls you back into the underneath the rock again. And and most often there's no air on top. So it's swirling, keeping you in that position. Um, In that instance, I was out of my boat and um, my boat and I went in different directions and and I was helped by a colleague to, to get off and the boat was picked up. So, yeah, you can get some interesting um, situations and have a few where 
been over backwards over something that I didn't particularly want to go backwards over and then had to figure out ways out of it. And um, so, yeah, you, it's you interesting get to me that you're using the word interesting, not dangerous <laughs> or terrifying or life threatening. Uh, yeah, when things go wrong, they're definitely life threatening. But as I say, you, you don't do these. It's, it's you don't do these things without developing the skills and the understanding and knowledge of what to do when things go wrong. You can't go into adventure thinking this is you know really thrilling and exciting and as if you've never done something before and you suddenly go into it. You've never been parachuting. You suddenly put a parachute on and you jump off. This is exciting. You can't do it that way. And actually, most extreme adventurers spend most of the time training for when things go wrong. You know big wave surfers will run along the bottom of the surf holding rocks so they can train for when the surf when they get it wrong and the surface is hammering them badly um base jumpers will you know i, I remember uh, talking to a base jumper who examined looked at all the all the incidents of deaths within base jumping and tried to figure out what the common common denominator was and then based on that he decided well i'm not going to do this this and this ever in my base jumping career because that's where things can go wrong so people take that element really, really seriously, and I, I did as well. I mean, I, I wanted to know what to do if things went wrong. Um, I wanted to understand that really carefully so that if something did go wrong, um, and practice it. You practice it when it's not so dangerous. It's the same kind of processes you need when it is more dangerous. Uh, it's just the environment's a little bit more unforgiving. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Was there a stretch of water that you especially liked kayaking in Wales? There was a couple of stretch of waters actually one's a um a little river called the trawerin which is um a dam fed river they used to let the water out the dam and it used to be grade three four water and you go in there and you could do all sorts of lovely things and that's really a practicing playground if you like where you can you can go and try things and there was a, a center there and all those sort of things so if you messed up it's likely yes you'd be washed down a little bit but it's likely nothing serious would happen so there's that one. And then there was the Schligui, which is the another lovely river, which has grade four elements in it, um, which is right on the, you know where the ground was for the National Mountain Centre. It actually started that area and we used to paddle down that uh, for quite some, some way and, and, and drop over some nice little drops. There's a couple of drops in there that I'd never tried, but people have tried and, and have succeeded, um, but they're far better kayakers than I am. So how did you get the idea, Eric, to try out a very different stretch of water, the River Ganges in mm. India? For me, that was accidental, believe it or not. One of the people that, well, the, the main person planning it, they had already got a team together and he, he developed equipment for people um, who had different uh, disabilities. And so one of our team member um, basically was paralysed from waist down and Part of what he was doing is seeing whether some equipment he developed would work effectively in these kind of expeditions. So his whole focus is about allowing people with disabilities to do uh, expeditions, whatever they might be. And for some reason, one of their team members had dropped out. Um, I was in a different part of the country at that time, and I came back to Wales for a while, and I was paddling around in Tuaron on my own. And then um, somebody had recommended me and had said, well, you know, you should try this guy. So he came up to me and said, do you fancy doing something? And I thought, well, I'm not doing anything for the next few months, so why not? Um, actually, it turned out to be a year because we had to do quite a lot of planning. The planning was longer than the actual expedition. What were you having to plan? Because we were not relying on people to support us, we had to work all the way from making sure we had the right equipment, that the equipment we had, we could get it to the country. Because one of our team members obviously required a lot of medical and uh, uh, support as well. We had to figure out how we could ensure that just basics are everyday things that we take for granted. Obviously, this person couldn't do that. And so we had to make sure that their medical stuff was uh, in the right place all the way down, because if he suddenly got s stuck without it, then he'd be in a really bad way. Right down to, well, we actually might need a little bit of money to do this. So we might have our own at those days, you were kind of living, as they say in Australia, off a smell of an oily rag. So most of the time, it was it was hand to mouth, but you were having fun doing it. Um, and so trying to figure out who we could find to, might be able to sponsor us and things like that also was part of that process. So that took quite a long time to organise. 
And then there was the connecting that to the bigger picture, to the um, you know National Geographic Society and all those sort of things. And so we could develop the reports and we could develop all those kind of things that come with expeditions often. And then figuring out what else we could do because we did a lot of other things whilst we were floating down. Where did you first put your kayaks in the water? Where did the journey begin? So it, it began right at the very top. Um, there's a confluence where two rivers come together and then at that point, it's around that Rishikesh area, that point um, then becomes the Ganga for real. And then we started right up there. Um, so we first got up into rafts and we did the top bit in rafts because um, trying to take canoes down, because we were in canoes at that stage, not kayaks. Um, and then after 10 or 15 kilometres, something like that, um, we then went back into the canoes and we did the rest of the month or so, or a couple of months by canoe. By canoe. Mm. So where would you sleep at night? We, we would go down as far as we could. We'd figure out a time that we needed to stop because we need to make camp. And on the side of the river, we would make camp. We did such fantastic preparation. We took all our cooking gear out with us and we had all these fancy things that we took. And within a short period of time, we realized we couldn't get the gas cylinders for these things. We couldn't do that. So we ended up buying local cookers and using local kerosene or create. We were originally trying to make fires, but all the wood there is utilized very, very quickly because you know people need the wood. And uh, so we had to buy these kerosene things and we ended up doing all sorts of interesting things and you, you, you do the best you can in the planning, but sometimes things don't go quite the way you expect. The Ganges is this sacred, you know, hugely mm. significant river. What's the state of the, the water like? Well, obviously this was a few years ago, so things may have changed now, but one of the things we were doing for a, a scientific project is, is looking at the state of the water all the way down. It wasn't fantastic. Some places it was pretty horrendous. Did it smell? Did it look, um, what did it look like? It didn't smell so much. It's different as you go down. So at the very, very top, there's lots of rivers that come into it, and all these rivers are also sacred. So these rivers that feed into the Ganges, often if people can't afford to, for sake of example, can't afford to create funeral pyres for dead bodies, they used to bury them with rocks. And there's all sorts of very important uh, religious elements that go around these things. So, you know, but the implication of that is that when the, when the monsoons come, these bodies get washed down into the Ganges. And you definitely didn't want to drink that water. And we had taken with us lots of, um, uh, you know, chemicals and things to get, most villages had pumps, so one of the things we had to do on the way down is figure out where the nearest village was um, and then find out how we could fill our containers and make sure we put chemicals in it, which isn't fantastic for your body, but it's the only way to, to do it. Um, and then that was survivors for a while. So it was definitely unclean, not drinkable. It was a little bit clearer when we started, but the closer and further down you get where the ground, where these sort of, um, where it's much flatter, less mountainous, less hilly. Um, and then, then it becomes a lot more in industry around it. Um, and then by the time we got to places like Kanpur, you could see the colour of the water was more black than brown. It's a hugely populated area mm. and those ancient cities like Varanasi yeah. along it. What are some of the sites that really have stayed in your memory from, from seeing them by, from the vantage point of that canoe yeah. in the river? There's a, there's a whole variety of them. One, I think, was probably waking up to a couple of people with shotguns. There. Aimed near you? Or uh, aimed, aimed towards us, but it didn't turn out too badly in the end. But that was interesting because you, you have a language barrier. Fortunately, one of our team could speak a little bit of Hindi, so we managed to uh, work our way through it. We had a liquor that's very similar to moonshine um, out there, when, and you know another group we'd inadvertently turned up roughly where they were making this stuff, which is still illegal, and, and they didn't like that very much. But there's all sorts of memories, good memories, and a lot of it's, um, you know, being in the environment where uh, even though it's such an enormous river and next to some really large, culturally significant places, a lot of the time you're in, in areas which is quite sparse and there are places where leopards have been seen or tigers have been seen or elephants have been seen, things like that. Because of what we were doing, we often got picked up, you know, somebody on the side of the river would see us and then before we knew there was a, a, a reporter or something like that or somebody who, a politician who thought this would be a good use of their time. So we got put up in hotels, we got this happened, that happened on, on the way down as well or we were part of some celebration that we were brought in as the as a crazy people doing crazy things. <laughs> Did you make it all the way to the Bay of Bengal? We didn't. There's a, a state called Bihar, and we got to pretty close to the edge of the state of Bihar, and by that time we'd been on the water quite some time. So four out of us were really ill. I was one of them, and we really didn't have the physical energy to go any further. 
we were warned not to go through Bihar. Um, we were told basically, and at that time also some Christian missionaries had been burnt in their car um, and things like that. And no matter how much you try and persuade people that you're not Christian, you're not from that background, when you're in a society that sees everything through religious lens, the automatic assumption is, you know, you're there and, you're, and you are Christian. And this particular state was having lots of struggles, so we were told not to go through there. In the usual way that we do, you know, white relatively middle class, Western, well, we can ignore that, it's not relevant. And it wasn't quite that bad. We did take some advice. In the very beginning, we took advice from a, a Sikh doctor saying that um, whatever you do, don't drink the Ganges water. People tell you it's holy, it's fantastic, don't drink it, it's really off. So we took that advice. But in this instance, we thought, well, shall we or shan't we? And two of our crew decided, well, actually, you're ill, we'll meet you a bit further down the river. They went a day or two down the river, got almost to the boundary of or to the border of this state, and they got attacked by uh, bandits. So one of them ended up in hospital with enormous, they got smashed over the head and things like that, had all, all the stuff they took with them stolen. The other one, fortunately, managed to, you know, didn't get hurt. Um, and then, of course, the message came back to us saying they're in hospital and we had to go and pick them up. So we decided at that stage we'd hired some big lorries, and uh, we put all our stuff in the lorries and they took us around that, this particular state. And then we went from there down to Calcutta. When we got to Calcutta, they told us, do not go any further. If you go into the Sundarbans, you will get attacked. Um, Sundarbans are quite well known for tiger attacks um, and also very large ships. So given the experience we've had at that stage, we thought maybe we'll take the advice this time. So we got to Calcutta and we then we decided not to go any further. And the, the teammate of yours who had the disability, who was paralysed, mm. did he make it he did, to Calcutta? He did, all the way down. Too? Yeah, yeah, no, he's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. He's a um, very, very strong paddler and, um, yeah. By this stage, Eric, you had become interested in psychology and the psychology yeah. behind the decision yeah. to undertake these kind of adventures and, and extreme sports. When you started looking at the research, what were the main theories about the kind of people yeah. and the kind of personalities who are drawn to activities like the ones you've been talking about? Yeah, yeah. So around about the same time that we did this expedition, um, I was also doing a master's degree in sport and exercise psychology. So I used that opportunity to explore expedition teamwork leadership. But I also wanted to use the master's opportunity to understand much more about adventure. And the three main things that came out in the literature, um, one is that people doing these activities must have a death wish. There's no other reason why people would do them. Um, there's some some desire, something deep inside them, even if they don't understand it, that says, you know, this is a, a, a way, an easy way of, of ending my life. The second one is that people must have no fear. Um, in order to do those things, because of how scary they must be, there must be something wrong with you uh, in the sense that you have no fear. And the third one is there must be a personality or it must be a personality issue called a risk-taking personality. And the only way you would do that is if you if you have this risk-taking personality and the risk-taking personality allows you to to do it well as well. So and, and fundamentally, they were all looking at it as doing adventure, especially at that sort of level, was not normal. It was abnormal. A mark of abnormality. Absolutely. And did that chime with your experience, the colleagues you knew? No, it really intrigued me because I couldn't find any positive literature at all. There was little glimpses here and there of people that had done some more interesting work uh, that didn't quite click with that, but really there wasn't anything. And as I was working with, you know, in the National Mountain Centre, the, the, some of the people there are, are literally the best of the best. And I knew how careful these people were. And they were calm, considerate, careful, highly skilled, spent a lot of the time trying to figure out you know, and making sure that things did not go wrong. Uh, the last thing they wanted is for things to go wrong uh, because it means they couldn't do it again. Actually had a very different experience of fear than the literature suggested and really the idea of having a death wish wasn't right. So so that sort of piqued my interest a little bit, realising that also it didn't match with my experience and, and unless I was a, a, a normal abnormal person, um, there must be something else going on. You mentioned fear, and of course that's got to be such a big issue psychologically in, in what's going on. Let's mm. talk just a little bit about fear more generally. Mm. It's such a physical emotion, isn't it? Yeah. What happens in our bodies when we yeah. experience yeah. fear? Yeah. There's, a, there's lots of discussion at the moment uh, in terms of what fear is, and especially the relationship between fear and anxiety. And to an extent they look similar from the outside, Fear can do things like your heart rate can race. Your you can you know you have the flight freeze type of which everybody is aware of. 
often it's about an overrush of um, emotions in your body. So you kind of, you're not sure what to do. You freeze and your mind also sort of freezes in its capacity to to explore opportunities and things like that. So you get this very narrowing down of capacities physically. Your body tightens up. Um, your mind tightens up, for want of a better phrase. Um, so that's the way we see fear. Um, that's the way we typically understand fear. And for most of us in, in everyday life, when that's happening physically and our mind's mm. processing it, we're thinking there's danger, look mm. away, escape. Mm. Uh, we're getting a message that we've got to take some action rapidly. Yeah. What? happens for adventurers like you when they feel those sensations of fear? Yeah, yeah. So the connection between fear and anxiety for everyday people is that fear is a real thing that's really there, that's really going, whereas often anxiety is, you know, it's wondering what or something could be, and but there's nothing. So in an adventure, of course, the thing is really there, it's really in front of you, and it could really hurt you if if things don't go to plan or if you don't work things out. The difference is, and I think we have in society, probably the best way to explain this is in society we have inadvertently, or maybe we've done it deliberately, who knows, have judged these emotions as good and bad. And fear is one of those ones that's put in the bucket of bad. We don't want to feel it. We, we don't want to feel it. it. It's not good for you. What adventurers are doing and what they're teaching us about fear is very much, well, actually, it's neither good nor bad. It's information that says there is something going on here that we need to pay attention to. Now, it might be triggered off if you're an extreme skier. It might be triggered off by a feeling you've got in your body uh, that's come through the ground or a sound or something like that that says, oh, I've got to pay attention here. And then then paying attention, there's an avalanche somewhere that you think I've got to do something about it. Or it could be something, um, you know, as a kayaker, something you've noticed somewhere or sound in the distance or something you've seen in the water that says, I've got to pay attention here. So fear becomes something that says, I've got to take this seriously the outcomes, the benefits of this are mind-blowing, but it's something I have to take seriously. And so that you do your research, you do your background work that says, what is that I need to take seriously? How am I going to manage this? What's the implications of that? At this moment in time, is this something I should be doing? Um, So it gives you that kind of trigger to start exploring a little bit more. It's a sense of being informed that you need to be aware and take this seriously. So it's like a a red flag or the red light on your dashboard. It's saying, pay attention to this. Yes. Uh, And I guess like like all emotions, the actual sensation around fear, it it can pass fairly quickly, even while the situation itself hasn't changed, that the emotion can shift. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and the old adage of, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway, it's not quite like that. But um, and it's also not the fear of fear um, in the sense if you if fear comes up and you then focus on it in a sense that this is bad, then that creates more fear, creates more anxiety. And all those things, are the, the things that are going to impair your capacity to move forward are going to get even stronger and stronger and stronger. You're going to get even more restricted in your capacity. But when you see fear differently, as in I need to take, pay attention here, what is it that I need to pay attention to? And you start using your body, using your um, your auditory, um, your haptic, your all your sort of perceptual capacities to pay attention to the environment to figure out what's happening. Then fear changes. Your fear is no longer this thing that grips you around the neck and sort of stops you from doing things. It suddenly opens up possibilities for doing things very differently. And you relax more. Um, it also expands your um, capacity. You suddenly, you know, base jumpers talk about being able to see all the nooks and crannies and colors. Even though they're traveling at 300 kilometers an hour past the rock, they can see all these things. So all your perceptual capacities sort of expand in their ability. So you get to experience what it actually means to be human. Sometimes I liken to it to a tiger in a cage. You know, once upon a time, tigers in zoos were in cages. And, you know, we realized tiger pacing up and down, looking very, very sick, they shouldn't be in a cage. We need to do something different with that. We need to open the cage door. We need to create tiger-like environments and let the tiger be a tiger. Still in a zoo, so we don't let them wander around the cities, but we hide their food places. We give them trees. We give them rocks to sit on. We give them all kind of tigerish type environments. What we've done to ourselves is we put ourselves into this tiger cage. And most of us are pacing up and down now, restricted emotionally, restricted physically, restricted in all those different ways. And we haven't quite figured out yet that actually we need to open this cage and create human-like environments. And human beings have developed over the years to be adventurous. We're not supposed to be not being adventurous. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are right now. We've always been, I wonder what's around the corner. Let's have a look around here. What happens if we do this? 
that's what adventure is. It's curiosity. It's exploration. It's, it's deep play. It's a wonder. It's what children do naturally. And then these kind of experiences that we have actually open up possibilities rather than close them down. So when we experience something like fear, it says, oh, this is interesting. What's going on here? If I don't pay attention to it, I could end up dead. I don't want to die. So I need to pay attention to it. Whereas the other way of looking at it is almost like maybe I need to shrink this cage that I'm in even closer now so whatever's outside can't get to me or I lock the doors with three locks. Different ways of looking at it. You said, Eric, that when you started looking into this field, the reasons that were given for motivating this kind Mm. of behaviour, like a death wish or um, adrenaline junkie or risk-taking behaviour, those sorts of things. What have you found through your conversations with, you know, adventure sports Mm. enthusiasts, enthusiasts, what's really the motivation if mm. those if those reasons didn't make sense to you what is driving people to yeah. to do these things for the first time and then to keep doing them first of all i would say why people get into adventure even extreme adventure there's various reasons. Sometimes it could be because my family are surfers. Sometimes it could be because I saw this video and I thought this looks really interesting. Sometimes it could be, you know, I've had one person saying I went to a, a motivational speech and, you know, I was a corporate, she called herself a corporate chick, but she was a, you know, very much a sort of the typical corporate kind of person. And the person doing the motivational talk happened to be a base jumper. And she looked at it and thought, oh, I'd love to do that and then spent six years doing the training to get there. So why people get into it is varied. Why people stay is very different. If things don't change for you very quickly, then something is, you know, either most, for the most part, you'll get injured badly or you, uh, you know, in the worst case scenario, you'll, you'll end up dead because you haven't taken what you're doing seriously. So people remain and keep doing it. And some of the people I spoke to were in their 60s and 70s in my research. So it's it's not like people keep doing it and then they stop at 30, they keep doing it. And actually what I made sure is that all the participants in my research have been over 30. There's a lot of research that shows that young people, male and female, sort of late teens, early 20s, there is a kind of, you know, I'm doing things to challenge myself. And some people might pick these activities up thinking that that's what they're doing. You know, it's it's that kind of old adage, just because a dog has four legs and a tail doesn't mean everything with four legs and a tail is a dog. (laughs) So when you get past and you're doing it regularly, so as I say, the oldest one's in the, actually 72, I think it was. So then it's a very, very different experience. And we get a number of things happening then. One is it's totally transformational. The development of the skills and the process to become, especially when you look at the more extreme adventure, changes you, changes you for the better. In what kind of ways? All sorts of ways. I remember speaking to a medical doctor who said, you know, before I found adventure, um, my patients were numbers in bed. Afterwards, they were people with life histories, family experiences, and the way I uh, interacted with them was very, very different. He had a new sense of the preciousness of life. New sense of of people. Exactly right. I remember seeing another, uh, speaking to another person who said, you know, I work in in retail. And before, you know, when I, in my early days when I was young, I used to get really stressed when people um, used to come back and, and call. Now I've been developing and I'm much better. I look at that and think, you know, they're, they're bringing their life here. It's, it's them that's coming in, not my issue, not them anymore. And I deal with them very differently. You know, and to those who've changed, I remember, you know, there's a medical doctor who actually became a kayaking instructor because of adventure sports and gave up their medical career. Lots of medical doctors are interested in this, become expedition medics and things like that. So it changes who you are. It changes, you know, the way you live your life in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Just Um, on that, it's interesting that rather than a particular psychological pull to do it, it's people people appreciate the psychological changes that happen Correct. as a result of, yeah. of doing this kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that's for those who've got, you know, they may have been originally got in because of the thrills and adrenaline, but those are those who've lucky enough to realise that actually that you need to get beyond that if you're going to survive and do it effectively. And, and they may have had an experience that changed them. And as a result, this is, I want to keep doing this. Um, so that's one element. Another element is the idea that it creates an environment where you're highly connected to the natural world that you're, you're, you're in. If you don't learn to attune to the little nuances within the natural environment that you're participating in, whether that's rocks, mountains, rivers, sea, whatever it might be, you know, you, you, things can go wrong. You need to be really tuned to all the little nuances and sometimes even to make the move you need to make at the right time um, and so that you have to have those. So it really connects you with the natural world and we already know that connection and with the natural world is really good for you. 
And so is physical activity for that matter. So adventure combines physical activity, it combines that connection with the natural world, but it also has those other elements of adventure. So it has those three really important elements. Thirdly, it is this sense that I mentioned earlier on, the sense of peace you get from it, where you are so in the moment, because you have to be, you can't be thinking about what you're having for lunch or whether or not you paid the bill or whether the gas is on when you're about to, uh, you know, you're about to climb something or jump off something. You have to be totally within that, um, within that environment in that moment. Some people describe it like a, I mean, like a mindfulness, a really good mindfulness experience. In fact, I remember speaking to one participant who said they've been training in mindfulness experiences for 15 years, and adventure was the first time that they'd actually reached what they thought they were going to reach through the mindfulness training. Rather that, than sitting on a cushion. Rather than sitting on a cushion, <laughs> exactly down right. A yeah. waterfall. Yeah. So, so there's that sense that you're totally in present in the moment, your mind is clear, but it's, it's clear beyond the kind of sociocultural kind of clarity, the mental chatter goes, it's, you're just, it's just clear, it's just empty, if you like, for want of a better phrase. And especially when you're surrendering to, you do everything you can, but in the end you have to surrender to the process. You can't fight some of these things. You have to go in and you have to work with the environment. So there's that bit too. Then there's a bit that you're, what we call our senses, uh, we might look at them as perceptual capacities. Um, senses is a bit of a passive process, i.e. something comes in and we sense it, but perceptions about much more of an active process we're involved in that. Well, they suddenly become extremely heightened. I mentioned earlier on how, how base jumpers can see all the nooks and crannies and colors, even though they're traveling at 300 kilometers an hour. Time slows down. Pretty well all activities talk about the sense of floating or flying or kind of, you know, like I said earlier on about the dance, the surreal sense as if you're kind of you're not trying, but it's just as if you're floating from one rock to the next or your climbers can be sort of the sense of just floating from one place to the next one. And then this last element, which participants really struggle to put words to. So I, I, ended, I ended up calling it the ineffable, which the only way people get close to it is by mixing multiple metaphors. And I remember one base jumper talking about if you imagine you're driving down the road and something goes wrong and your car starts to spin at the same time as you're having an orgasm, at the same time as... And he was going on like this, trying to put it all together. He said, that's what it's like. And then at the end of it, he said, well, actually, it's not quite like that, but that's the closest I can get to it. So it's this kind of... Um, there's an element of the experience that's so embodied, you know, so much part of the whole kind of... that relationship between your body and the environment that you can't translate that into words. You could argue that could be the limitations of English. I mean, there are places around, around the world that have one word that we can't describe. But in the end, it's something that people cannot put words to. They can only point to. They can say, well, it's kind of like this, but it's not really. It's, if you add that and you add that, it's kind of like that, but it's not really. So there's a sense of something that's been so powerful that it is beyond words. I think we need to get out of the studio and go and do a face <laughs> jump or something. Eric, it's been really fascinating to, to get your insights. Thank you for being my guest on You're very, very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Psychologist and extreme sport adventurer Eric Breimer was my guest on Conversations today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Attention, passengers. Hello, Conversations listeners. Jonathan Green here from RN's Return Ticket. On our show, we take you on journeys of the mind. No passport required. We'll chat with some fine guides in destinations you'd love to travel to. Come travel with us here on Return Ticket. You'll find all the episodes on the ABC Listen app.